Welcome to The Organisational Inclusionist. I'm your host, Grace Masuro. In this podcast series, we'll be delving deep into the pressing issues surrounding equality, diversity and inclusion in both the workplace and the broader world. My goal is to foster understanding, inspire change and amplify the voices of those advocating for a more inclusive and equitable society. Throughout this series, I'll be engaging in candid discussions with leaders, experts, activists and changemakers from various fields. We'll explore the challenges, successes and evolving landscapes of equality, diversity and inclusion. From dismantling systematic biases to promoting equal opportunities for all, we'll touch on a broad range of topics. But we won't stop at discussing problems, we'll actively seek out solutions and actionable steps to drive positive change. Our aim is to inspire and empower you, our listeners, to take an active role in making the world a better place for everyone. This is The Organisational Inclusionist. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Organisational Inclusionist. Today I'm joined by Catherine Garrod, who is the author of Conscious Inclusion, um, her new book. The book is essentially for anyone who's trying to address inequalities in their organisation. And if that is you, then you need to just go and get the book. Get it ASAP. Um, it is amazing. I've got a copy and I'm very pleased. And you can also see it in the background of Catherine's. Uh, <laughs> so um, before we get stuck into the conversation, Catherine, I'd love it if you'd just take a few minutes to give our listeners a bit of an insight into who you are and what you do, etc. Yeah, of course. And thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Um, so my business is called Compelling Culture. It's uh, just over three years old now. And essentially, the big work that I do uh, for clients, the long-term work I do, is I do an organisation-wide review to understand if people from underrepresented groups are having the same good experience as people from overrepresented groups. And if they're not, refine the actions, build a strategy and a 12-month roadmap, and then I'll support clients, you know, as much or as little as they need through that process. And then they'll run that diagnostic again in 12 or 18 months they've got a bit of confidence that their efforts are being put in the right places and then the other thing I do loads of is keynote speaking for big organization events or uh, slightly smaller more intimate leadership masterclasses and that's aimed at giving people the really sort of practical everyday ways that they can think about inclusion in their work so that's mostly what I do. Amazing. Thank you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. So I wrote that in, oh, what was it now? 2022. Um, my business at that time was about 18 months old. I'd been working in, in this space for a bit longer than that. But what I was really sure about by that point was that Every organisation I'd worked with or, you know, clients that I've been working with kind of struggled with the same challenges. And there was always lots of really brilliant people that cared about this stuff, actually mm. quite often working really, really hard. But their efforts weren't necessarily meeting their ambitions because they didn't have the kind of the support and the guidance and the framework to put their energy in the right places. So me wanting to kind of support all of those brilliant people wanted the book to be something you could pick up find a chapter that was related to something you were working on now or refer back to it later or read the whole thing front to back but just be this really practical guide that could equip and empower people whether you were you know really at the start of your career in the HR team or you sat in the boardroom or you were leading a resource group or you were a senior manager of a whole department or you just really cared about this stuff I wanted the book to be something that would really kind of energize people to have a bit of confidence about what are the right things to do and, and when to do them and how can you connect it to the work that you're already doing. Amazing and how long did it take you to write the book? Oh this always makes me cringe a little bit because people laugh so um, I wrote the first draft in five weeks mm -hmm. and yeah it was intense I did nothing else for those five weeks and I'm talking seven days a week writing oh, wow. um, I don't know if I'd recommend that but I felt that I it, it was in me and I needed to get it out and I couldn't have done that if I was trying to also do all of the other things that I do in life like switching 
it ju I just couldn't. So I was like, I'm going to take August off. You know, most of my clients take holidays in August. I'm going to take August off and I'm going to do it. it. meant I didn't have a holiday that time. I was a bit tired, but hey. Mm. Um, and then I sent out the draft. Actually, over 20 people volunteered to read different chapters oh, for me. Amazing. Most of them read the whole thing. I was so blown away by people's generosity. <laughs> and just really helped me with the structure and you need to say a bit more about that or explain that a bit further I really like that example but I'm not sure about that one or um and then I got all of that feedback back which was really overwhelming <laughs> um because it was 20 people's feedback on nearly 50,000 words right so I had yeah. to pull all of that together but I spent three weeks editing it in the October that year and then I handed in the final manuscript on Halloween. I always remember it because it was Halloween. So, yeah, it was in total eight weeks of the writing. But what I didn't know, I'd never written a book before, is you also need to get involved in designing the front cover, the text layout, the font, the styling, mm. the graphics needed to be designed, the back cover copy needed to be written. So actually the whole process ran from probably about May to the following April when it then published, wow. it published April 23. That's amazing. So from your experience, then, have you got any recommendations for any budding authors that are listening? Like, what would you recommend they do or don't do from your process? Do you know what the bit that kept me on track, which I would 100% recommend, is really think about your reader. Like, what is the impact you want to have for your reader? And be really clear about that before you start writing. Because mm. if your brain's anything like mine, you can kind of get carried away and go off on a story or go off on a bit of a tangent. You know, oh my goodness, this chapter's really long. And actually having that really clear picture about who, who you're writing it for, what's the impact you want to have for that person? How do you want them to feel when they're reading your book? Really helps you to go, actually, I need to keep that bit. And that bit, I probably need to, you know, I need to find another way of, of uh, packaging up uh, that bit of writing that I did. So I set up another document, which I think they call the graveyard in writing. So I didn't delete anything because deleting felt, you know, if I'd just spent two, three hours writing a chapter, so then just going, no, and delete it felt brutal. Mm. So I would just cut it and put it into this other document. And to, I've never actually looked at that document ever again but it gave me permission to just keep moving forward and not get too hung up about, you know, taking text out that I'd spent a lot of time writing. That's brilliant. So it's literally like taking out your text and killing it. So you've, you've buried it in the graveyard. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But I like, I like the symbolism of that. So that sounds brilliant. Anything else that you'd say absolutely do as part of your process or absolutely do not do? Uh, so the absolutely for me, I mean, I talk about conscious inclusion, right? So that the fact that I went out to 20 people and asked them to give feedback on my work felt extremely vulnerable. Mm. Um, I'm somebody that's quite confident in my work. I know I don't have all the answers and I know I get it wrong sometimes and I know I'm not perfect, but I have a level of confidence, right, that I'm here to get it right. There's a great Brene Brown quote, which I put in the book. I'm here to get it right, not be right. So I, I have this level of confidence about my approach and what I'm doing. But somehow handing the book out to people and going, felt really vulnerable. It like really yeah. shook me, which I wasn't expecting. But coming back to, I'd actually still recommend that you do that. Um, 20 different people giving me their perspectives on what I'd written and how I'd written it and how that was coming across to them was so valuable because what I did and you know I, I kind of talk about this as an approach in the book is I went to people who didn't know my work so well so one of my neighbours did it um you know one of my oldest friends did it I had people that I'd worked with in my corporate career had done it I had people who'd subscribed to my newsletter who I'd never met before did it wow. and then I also mapped out I was like how many men and how many women you know, what's the mix of ethnicities? What's the mix of organisations, industries and sectors? You know, have I got a mix of sexual orientation, etc. I'm writing a book about inclusion, right? I'm writing a book yeah. about people's experience and culture. Have I got enough? Have I got a broad enough circle to get really challenged on what I've done to see if it resonates and it works for people from a really practical, I work in this type of organisation point of view, 
And also, I've had these lived experiences point of view that I just haven't had, right? I'm one person. Yeah. So that for me, when I got all that feedback back, like I said, it was overwhelming. One person had taken uh, my book to the printers and it was kind of A4, big chunk, wow. and they'd red penned it for me. Amazing human being did that for me and everybody else had emailed. So I scribed everybody else's feedback onto that printout. And then I just had to take it like one chapter at a time. And what the first person said, it was originally written in five parts. Um, the first person came back and said, your part three is too long. You need to break it out. It's a bit overwhelming. And I was like, no, I know what I'm doing. Like part three is good. Like it's all about culture. Like, mm. The next person came back and said, your part three is too long. You need to break it down. I was like, oh, that's really annoying. The third person <laughs> was like, your part three is too long. You need to break. I listened, right? Because mm. that is the value of going out yeah, to multiple people. Those people didn't know each other. Those people didn't know they'd all given me the same feedback. But I did. I completely restructured the book. It's now in seven parts. They're more even. And it Amazing. is a much better book for it. So go to people that aren't just like you go to people that don't know your work so much and give them that absolute permission to tell you what they like about it and, and what else you know you could maybe consider or make it a much better book amazing thank you so much I think that's going to be really useful for anyone thinking about writing a book and also for me because I am um, I am planning on starting my book this year so yay tips. that was a little bit yeah you're welcome from my perspective um all right so your book is obviously available now for people to buy so go and buy it please but <laughs> can you I know you mentioned earlier about what you were hoping the book would do in terms of allowing people to go to specific parts based on kind of what their needs are what would you say your ultimate goal is with the book so you know let, let's do an ego question right i decided to leave my safe secure comfortable job in a corporate organization because i just had this belief and this drive to want to help more organizations do this stuff well mm -hmm. and I knew that being one person in one organization at a time there was only ever going to be so far I could kind of reach people so the book was my my way of reaching as many people as possible you know if I think about my my fees for my consulting it's a very different price point to going and getting a book in your local bookstore or you know getting it online so you know, the most you can spend on it is $16.99 if you shop around, you know, different different stores do different discounts. So, you know, for, for $16.99, I wanted to be able to reach as many people as possible. And actually, when I was writing it, uh, one of my clients said to me, but Catherine, what if everyone buys your book and then they never need to work with you again? You know, you're doing yourself out of, out of income and out of business. And I, I was like, hmm, well, best case, 10 million people go and buy it yeah. and they all just get to work and they go and make all of their organizations much more inclusive and work mm -hmm. much better for everyone i would love to have that much impact on the world exactly. but the more likely case is you know a bunch of people will buy it and you know it'll either just help them get on and do the stuff they're already doing better awesome that gives me massive kind of satisfaction and then a bunch of those people will go, she knows what she's talking about. I'll give her a call. Yeah. So kind of, you know, whether it went massive or whether it was small, for me, it was always about the intent was being in service of trying to make the work people were already doing just work better and speed up their success. I love that. And just imagine, though, that 10 million people do buy it. And then even if, well, half of those people coming to you for work would be crazy, as in <laughs> you manage that number. But no. that isn't so I'm manifesting that type Thank of thing. Thank you. <laughs> there was no definitely way. like a, a steep rise last year after it published. So it's oh, it's meeting meeting that ambition, which is awesome. Yeah. Excellent. So what how would you define if we think about from an organizational context? Um, we talk about inequalities a lot and what we mean by that. And I think, you know, sometimes people kind of debate, you know, everyone has equal access here and it's really easy to come and work here. 
But from your perspective, what do we what do you mean when you refer to inequalities in an organizational context? So I think there's two things for me, and, and quite early on in the book, I talk about the difference between equality and equity. So equality to me is you treat everyone in exactly the same way. So, and that can get mixed up with fairness and it's it's actually a bit flawed because it's one size fits all. So there's a really lovely visual in the book that was recreated from somebody else that had created it and I credit them in the book, but it's four people have been given identical bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is quite small. The second one is average height. The third one is really tall. And the fourth one has mobility challenges in their legs. So they're sitting in a wheelchair. So they've all been given exactly the same bike. They've all been treated exactly the same. But the small Mm. person's struggling. The average height person's okay. The tall person's really uncomfortable. Their uh, hands and their uh, knees are too close together and their chin's up by their knees. They look really uncomfortable. And the fourth person isn't able to use the bicycle at all. So Mm. um, it doesn't really work. What you want to get to is you give people what they need to create the same experience. So in this scenario, you give people the bike that they need. Yeah. The small person gets a small bike, the average person gets the average one, the tall person gets a larger bike, and the person um, in a wheelchair gets a bike that can be powered with their hands instead of their feet. So you're still ultimately giving people a bike, you're just giving what they need. So, And just to say a bit more about that in an organisational context, um, and across society actually, Most of the people in our history um, in the positions of power have been typically upper class, heterosexual, white, able-bodied, neurotypical, and actually men, right? And they have designed the world on what makes sense to them, you know, how things work in their everyday experiences, because that's what we all do. Um, So things like our laws and our policies, our research endeavours, our services, our workplaces, marketing, broadcast content, products, anything you can think of that we consume as human beings work better for you if you share that same demographic makeup as the people who've designed everything Mm. and less well if you don't, right? So... The work of inclusion isn't to tell all those people off and they've not been doing a very good job because actually it's not really their fault. They've just been doing what made sense to them based on their own lived experiences. But what we do have to do is bust this myth of meritocracy, right, that attributes success purely to hard work. Now, don't get me wrong, those people in power might have achieved truly brilliant things and we should continue to acknowledge that. Um, But what we have to also acknowledge is the world's been a bit rigged in their favour. So the work Mm. of inclusion, and if you think about those bicycles again, is to look at the research or the marketing or whatever it is that people do in their everyday work and go, have we built it one size fits all? Or have we considered how this works well for everyone? And there might just be some tweaks and adjustments that need to be made. Absolutely. So for, you know, you mentioned that, you know, irrespective of fault there are systems that are to a certain extent rigged in certain people's favor um so I've had um you know some recent debates on LinkedIn with people that challenge the the premise of equity and you know that means taking from one group to give to another group what are your thoughts on that I think I think it's a big conversation, right? The other thing that comes up is privilege and who has privilege and who doesn't. And mm. me personally, those debates online, I'm like, are people receptive to learning? Are they genuinely yeah. curious? And if they are, I'll engage. And mm. if they're not, I don't. Because actually, yeah. you know, this work can be kind of exhausting if you get pulled into everything. I think most often when people are speaking up, about inclusion in a way that is is perhaps different to your own kind of understanding or, or thoughts about inclusion it sometimes can be that they just think oh this has got a risk of leaving me out and I'm getting left behind and it's not about me and hang on a minute and da, da, da. So, so actually what I recommend people do if, if that's going on inside an organization if you've got people really resisting inclusion listen 
Like, what is it that they're worried about? Find out about those fears, because it might just be that there's a tweak that's needed to be made to your messaging to make sure that inclusion really is about everyone and creating that same opportunity and experience for everybody. Because what I've always found is the universal thing people want is to be valued, heard and involved. Mm -hmm. And actually a really big driver for inclusion and kind of pulling more people together on the same page is it's about fairness. You know, if we all work in this organisation or we all do the same kind of job or we all are accessing policies or services or whatever, we need to make sure that they work well for everybody and they provide for everybody. So it's absolutely not about taking away from one group. It's about making sure all groups are having the same good access or opportunity or outcome. Absolutely. I recently delivered a workshop for an organisation and it was about belonging in the business. And they were essential. We were trying to create a space where everyone felt comfortable kind of sharing their views, irrespective of how, you know, wild or, or contentious those views might have been. And um, I always go above and beyond to make people feel safe. Like I will volunteer some really silly information or, you know, I always volunteer my lived experience as well, just to help people to understand the other perspective. Um, Mm. But I do remember one person in the room, a white male being quite vocal about his view that actually, no, it's really easy to, to, you know, everyone is able to have the same access to get here. When I joined, they didn't ask me what my race was and things like that. And you could see a couple of people from minority backgrounds kind of shrink into their seats with discomfort. And I listened. um, And when he finished, I said, let me, I'm going to share with you my Yoruba name because I'm Nigerian originally. And I said, I'm going to share with you my full Yoruba name. And I told him my name. And I said, if that was on the top of my CV, how easy do you think it would be for me to get invited to an interview compared to you? So let's say for the sake of argument, his name was John Smith. And mm-hmm. my Yoruba name is Oluwagbemisola Mosuro. And he nice. looked at me as I was pronouncing it and was like, and I said, those are the types of things that mm-hmm. cause inequalities and a mm-hmm. lack of inclusion and, and diversity within organizations because even though people don't mean to, you know, not invite people from diverse backgrounds into interviews, hearing that mm-hmm. kind of name is it is it in itself a barrier for some people because they mm-hmm. immediately worry about offending you or mispronouncing mm-hmm. your name and then being embarrassed or worried that you're going to get upset, etc. And that in itself, it's crazy how how much of an impact that can have on a a recruiting manager's decision as to whether or not they're going to invite that person to an interview, irrespective Mm -hmm. of how great that CV is. And I think it's so important to give space for those kinds of conversations and sharing those types of lived experiences, because his view by the end of that workshop was like, I get it. Nice. Get it. And it was such a small example, but you don't get examples if you don't have exposure to those experiences do you know what I mean so I think think... you're absolutely right as well and I think in that space as well one of the other things that we did like you said is ask you know what is causing some of your frustration um you know I've had a friend in the past say I don't believe in diversity and inclusion you know I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong and I feel like you know it kind of leaves leaves white people out and um my question was, but what is your fear in that? Like, you know, what are, what what is getting you so upset? What are you worried about? What don't you like about it? And just asking those questions were really mm-hmm. powerful to understand, but also to help people to unpack mm-hmm. why they feel so emotional about about mm-hmm. that, and really kind of using that information, like you said, to then communicate the message effectively, so they understand ultimately what's in it for them as well. Totally. I I think it's such an important point because it's like those moments, like that story you just described for the John Smith person, like that will be something they remember forever. That moment, that shift, that switch, that understanding, that session. And I just think that's, you know, this work can can often be one conversation at a time. And there's just these moments that happen. And that's when I get really excited. It sounds like you too. You're like, you've got it. Like it's just happened, you know? (laughs) You can see it. Body language changes, engagement changes. 
and that's the thing like you said this this work can be extremely exhausting it can be triggering it can be sometimes it can be quite sad you know because obviously like you said it's an emotional subject we're really trying to create change in the spaces that we're in um but it's so important to keep going because conversations Mm. like that and interactions like that are exactly why we do what we do um make sure you've got your people or your resources or your zones or your spaces to go and recharge though you know like I do I'm like if I'm I'm faced you know and I'm live and I'm switched on like I'll have the conversation and I'll hold space um but sometimes you know in I was at a funeral last year and I was like you know what I don't always have to be on duty I can't Mm. always be on duty Mm. and I honor that to myself right because I Mm. I give and I graft and I'm passionate and I care um but it can't be 24 7 otherwise that impacts my my well-being so yeah go for it but also make sure you recharge would be my definitely such a good bit of advice thank you Catherine so You gave an example earlier about the illustration that's in your book, and I've only recently seen that illustration, actually, and I love it. Like, it's just another great way of illustrating that. But for anyone that now gets it, you know, gets what we mean by inequality and, you know, inequity, how do we then go on to bridge the gap between our new understanding of inequality and then taking tangible steps to create equity in organizations yeah so this this is the basis of the work right and I this is very deliberately why my book was called conscious inclusion so my message is focus on inclusion first and think about how you lead yourself and others um you know we've talked about how so much of what we've inherited doesn't necessarily work as well for everybody so making those conscious inclusive decisions is just a massive part of the work that's needed and I actually have it on my um laptop screensaver um the words unless you're consciously including people you are almost certainly unconsciously excluding people So uh, uh, you're probably aware of this, but over 90% of our decisions that our brain makes are on our behalf and they're automatic. And it's based on our own previous experiences. It's yes or no, buy it, don't buy it, watch another episode, go to bed. All the time, it's making all of these decisions. Incredible making decisions about your own life. Really good, pretty reliable, it's okay. It is far less reliable when you're making decisions about other people's lives. So the work of conscious inclusion is to get your brain into that five or 10 percent thinking that knows it doesn't know everything, that knows it hasn't had every lived experience, but knows it needs to go and get some research and some feedback before you're then making decisions about um, other people. So whatever the work that you do, whatever team you know that people might be in or organisations or community groups that they're part of, You need to involve a deliberately diverse mix of people in research, in design and in testing. Mm -hmm. And if everybody did that in every job, in every kind of setup, in every volunteer community group across, like we changed the world overnight, like deliberately involve a diverse mix of people in research, design and testing. And, you know, I kind of said this already, but, you know, I am constantly learning. I have accepted, you know, I will definitely never know everything. Things will continue to change. And so they should. That's what makes the world kind of exciting. But that exercise I did with the book, I did with loads of work. I deliberately seek out alternative perspectives. I go to people that I know are going to challenge my thinking. I go to Mm. people that I know know less about my work. Um, or have different career experiences, whatever that might be. And I ask, you know, what's working? What's missing? So, you know, I used to kind of develop my work to 95, 98% and be like, yeah, this is really good. Like, I feel really strongly about this. I've done some good research. I'm ready to go. I'm going to go and ask some people for some feedback. And in my corporate career, I'm a white woman. I worked in HR. I was surrounded by lots of other white women, not exclusively, but there was more mm-hmm. more people like me than not. Yeah. And I realised I'd fallen into a bit of a trap of going, oh, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about my yeah. work? And they would give me really good feedback. They were smart, intelligent people that I respected. They gave credi- 
incredible feedback. But as soon as I recognized I was going to the same go-to people every time, I started deliberately going to people in different teams, different departments, you know, that knew me less well, it, you know, employee resource, resource groups, et cetera, et cetera, people outside the organization. I started only developing my work to about 60%. Mm -hmm. Going, look, here's what I'm trying to solve or here's what I'm trying to achieve. This is the reason I'm doing it. These are my thoughts so far. Are you up for giving me some input? Because I really want to make sure, you know, I've thought about this from, from multiple perspectives. And I'd kind of give people a red pen and I'd print it out yeah. and, you know, encourage them to write all over it. And then I'd develop the work maybe to 80%. And then I'd put it out there and kind of create the autonomy that people could put their own stamp on the final 20%. Because what worked in team A wasn't necessarily going to work in team B or mm. team C or... So kind of leaving room for people to put their own stamp on it because they know their team or their department or their work or their whatever actually set people up much more for success than me at the beginning going, I've got all the answers, I've got the expert. So oh, it's it's kind of letting go of the, you know, if you're like me, letting go of the control freaking you a bit <laughs> um, and, and really actively inviting people to participate in your thinking. No, but again, that's brilliant advice. I think I always, um, you know, we do talk a lot about if we want to create a change, it's really important to not go to the same people. But also if traditionally, you know, our network looks a lot like us, obviously yeah. things are changing now. Um, but that having that awareness and, and then using that, you know, if you're trying to create inclusive, inclusive spaces or inclusive change, being aware of that and making sure that you go above and beyond to go out outside of your network if you need to to just get that that diverse thinking is so important so thank you Catherine the other bit I'd just add to that is it's just more fun usually and more interesting to build with people not for people yeah. so don't sit on your own in isolation and try and solve these big things on your own you know that can be quite terrifying and quite overwhelming particularly in this work mm. But you build these relationships and these connections with people. You just learn a bunch more stuff and it's just more interesting. And then you're more confident when you do go live with something um, that you've been really thoughtful about the approach. Definitely. And that you've already won some people over because they were part of the design. True. Okay, brilliant. So we talked earlier about what things can do to address inequality or inequity in their organisations. And you, you spoke to you know, just thinking inclusively in everything that you do and having that inclusive lens on. Um, do you have any examples of successful initiatives that you've witnessed or strategies that have been used to think inclusively in organisations? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about inclusion first and then I'll talk about diversity second. So when it comes to inclusion, lots of organisations will do things like an engagement survey, maybe once once a year, maybe more often, maybe less often. And we saw this massive rise, actually, in 2020 of those organisations adding in lots of diversity and inclusion questions. But mostly they were seeking a, a perception rating. So things like this organisation cares about diversity and inclusion and just wasn't helping. So what I've seen that works really, really well is look at the questions. You've probably already got some in there. They usually start with I. Look at the questions that are seeking to understand people's personal experiences. And if you think about inclusion, I mentioned it earlier, being this sense of being valued, heard and involved. Look for the questions that might talk about things like autonomy or, you know, it's safe to speak up or those kinds of things that start with an I. And then look at the scores by different demographic groups, because mm -hmm. what I've seen so often is people will get their uh, results back. The scores for the questions might be 85 or 88 and they think, great, you know, we'll look at the comments. We might make a few tweaks, but actually not too much to worry about. But when you look at those I questions that I mentioned and you break those out, usually what you find, I've yet, I've yet to um, be... Uh, proven wrong on this one is that the biggest group the dominant group are scoring much higher than the smaller groups 
Mm -hmm. So let's take ethnicity. If your uh, population is majority white, your white population are typically scoring much higher than your black population, your South Asian population, your mixed race population, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So they might be scoring 88 and then your other populations might be scoring 62, 65, et cetera. So when you can see that you've got, you know, 20 point variations in scores sometimes, you know that you've got to focus on the everyday experience and the inclusive culture of everybody feeling valued, yeah. heard and involved before you can really get to pushing hard on the diversity bit. Because I think mm. what I see when organisations push really hard on the diversity bit, if they haven't done the inclusion bit, it's just a really horrible experience. People are being invited to come and join a culture that actually yeah. isn't as welcoming or successful for exactly. people and then they leave, right? So I've seen those big um kind of that visibility of those big gaps in those schools for leaders just be an absolute catalyst for changing what goes on in their own team and their department. And I've seen teams close gaps from 20 point variation to I'm like, do you know what, like under five, that's fine. You know, if it was zero and it was exactly the same, great. But if across all of your different uh, kind of de demographics, there was a five point tolerance across you know, all the different ways you can slice the data, then you can be really confident that your culture is good. Um, so that that was the bit on inclusion is, is just look at those scores and then divide them out. And then for diversity, um, of all the things I've seen, providing um, try before you apply experiences is, is the, the best thing I've seen, the most powerful thing mm -hmm. I've seen. So before I set up my business, I was working for Sky and I uh, at one point was doing a bit of research for the regulator. So Ofcom is a regulator for, for media and communications. And they'd asked everybody with a license to provide some information. And the biggest broadcasters were asked to do this deep dive analysis. So I spent a bunch of time reviewing all of the initiatives that were in place across Sky for increasing diversity, right? Addressing overrepresentation. Mm -hmm. And I found over 30 initiatives, right? So no shortage of commitment, passion, motivation, da 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 da. Um, and there were really brilliant people behind all of these initiatives, you know, with their own backstory or links or somebody in their family or something they experienced before. But some of them were only offering like a few weeks work experience or they weren't connected to, they weren't translating into full-time employment at the end of that yeah. experience. So actually what that meant for an organisation like Sky, which in the UK was 24,000 people when I was there, those small initiatives just weren't translating into more inclusive and diverse teams, right? So they were creating great opportunities for people definitely acknowledge that but it wasn't translating into more diverse and inclusive teams but of those 30 different initiatives I found three that were and they were about creating these opportunities to come meet the team see what the work was about understand what was being involved maybe get some training in advance explore what a career might be like before there were any jobs that were available or advertised or all the rest of it. So if you think about mm. sport as an analogy, if you've got, um, you know, a, a really successful sports team, you don't wait for a player to get injured before you're thinking about the people that might be able to take that Absolutely. position next. So it's all about building that reserves bench in advance and warming people up mm. to the brand or the type of work or wherever that might be. So that when you do have vacancies, which are advertised to anybody to apply to you've built this successful pipeline of people and you can be really targeted about who you're warming up to before there's a job mm. you know so you can badge it as we're trying to get more women you've got you know much more women that are now much more likely to consider applying for a job in technology for example if you're trying to get more women in technology so I saw massive shifts in the teams that were really deliberate and intentional they'd worked out which population they didn't have very many of. They mm -hmm. built really specific initiatives to welcome people to come and learn a bit more about the job and the team and the organisation. And then when they had vacancies, they said, oh, by the way, we're hiring. If you're interested, please consider an application. And they saw massive shifts. So they've been really deliberate 
about targeting populations for roles they knew they were going to be hiring for in the future. That is brilliant. And I think it's the deliberateness as well. I think with the best will in the world, organisations sometimes feel like we really want to do something here. And then they'll just really quickly decide what that something's going to be rather than taking that time to do the diagnostic, to understand what the need is, and then ensure that what they do then do is very targeted and it's strategic. So I think that example is brilliant. Do you know if they still do that? Um, Do you know, I don't, but I I can't imagine they don't. (laughs) Do do you know what I mean? They had such success. So they had they had something for tech which had been going on for I think that was like 2017 that had been set up so that had been going you know long before I did that piece of research. Mm. They had something for the engineers which were the people going in and installing in people's houses because actually most over 70 percent of domestic purchasing is made by women. So it was like why wouldn't we have women turn up to people's houses? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so that was amazing. And then um, the early careers. So Sky as an organisation would get thousands of people applying for apprentice graduate work experience opportunities mm-hmm. um, but they recognized again from the research that it was a very similar demographic profile each time so they didn't close the gates to any of that profile yeah. they just went right who haven't we appealed to yet mm-hmm. you know where can we what partnerships can we build like what relationships can we connect how can we go and reach a broader um reach of people that we just haven't you know we haven't yet made that reach so they they saw huge and in quite a short amount of time as well um they saw huge changes so i can't it might not be a program anymore because it might just be the way that they do it now but um Mm. yeah they saw some phenomenal phenomenal stuff was awesome amazing i think what you said about they didn't close the gates to anyone they just thought about how to open them wider get to exactly and how do we get to the people that aren't currently applying which is so powerful thank you Catherine okay so I'm really big on bringing people on the journey with you I think the best change sticks if you involve you know your employees and your key stakeholders in the design and creation of that Um, have you got any tips for organizations wanting to bring people along on their inclusion journey Yes, um, and I, I love that, me too, I'm the same. Um, I think, you know, we alluded to it a little bit earlier in the conversation, but but sometimes it can feel like the mix of perspectives are really contrasting and, you know, mm. people are all in different places and they always will be. It's the nature yeah. of a topic like this. So um, one of the things I recommend is, is finding the common ground. So like, what are the things that people do all sort of agree on? You know, what can they sign up to? So I talked about fairness quite often is a big driver here. Most people, you know, if they work in the same team or for the same organisation or in pursuit of the same goal, there's a unifying reason that all of those people are there. So mm-hmm. use that as your basis if you've got a mix of perspectives and go from there. And just remember, kind of, if I keep repeating this, but everybody wants to be valued, heard and involved. So find the ways to kind of bring people in. Mm-hmm. And actually it links to, to my next point that I would make is it's about if you can connect it to people's work, it makes it much easier for them. Definitely. So if you're good at research, who's involved in the research? If you're a fantastic marketeer, how authentic has your marketing been when you look at different demographic populations over the last 12 months? Mm. If you are involved in delivering leadership development, who gets developed? If you are looking to create more innovation in the organisation or new business development or new revenue sources, whatever that might be, who gets involved in the ideas generation? Mm. So if you can literally link it to the work that people are already doing, by looking at who who we you know if you write down the names on a piece of paper first if we're going to go and get some customer feedback or we're going to put project team together or we're working with a third party on some research if you kind of write down you know the names that come to mind immediately and they're all a bit like you yeah. widen the circle mm-hmm. if you've got some principles about that research make sure the data is broken down by demographics for example so build on the things that people are already doing they've already got really really valuable expertise chances are it might be a bit one size fits all because that's how most of society 
is Mm -hmm. but they will know the right ways right to adapt that and change it so help them and equip them to do that connect it to their work and then the other one actually you talked about it earlier uh, another big one is find the ways of storytelling so Mm -hmm. learning about someone's experience that you haven't had but it's a friend or a colleague or somebody you've known for a long time or, or worked with for a long time and they share that personal experience it, te- it does tend to stick like it tends yeah. to in a way that maybe reading a book or listening to a podcast which are also great right but a personal person that you've known for a while and you just didn't know that thing mm-hmm. tends to be really sticky um, and I've just got vivid memories of all kinds of personal things that people yeah. have been sort of brave and willing to share at work in the pursuit of more people understanding. Because mm. um, literally everyone's got something to teach you. Like, absolutely, we will never have all of our experiences. They will never all be the same. So mm-hmm. I think if you if you can create that, if it's safe enough for people to want to share that, and, mm-hmm. and they have to want to, right? You can't expect people to do this. Has to be safe in the organisation, has to be clear about why you're doing it. And you need to provide some support and encouragement for those people because, you know, it can be a bit vulnerable sharing some of that stuff and a bit exhausting, you know, if you're telling it over and over again or people are coming up to you afterwards and saying, oh, my goodness, thank you so much. Like now let now let me tell you about my terrible experiences. Like you need to be really sensitive about creating that. Mm. Um, But if you can demonstrate that you are being sensitive, you are supporting people and then find those people that are brave enough to do it, it can literally help shift people's understanding quite quickly. Amazing. No, I completely agree, especially about the piece around just how you manage the sensitivity and making it a safe space, you know. So we all know how important leaders are in creating inclusive change and driving equality and diversity in organizations what role do you think they play in that in organizations and kind of is there any encouragement or advice that you would give to uh, leaders in organizations as to how they can play a more active role yeah and i i think the first thing I would say here is is fear can be a big thing that gets in in, in anyone's way, but in leaders' yeah. way, right? Particularly if they've been around for a while or grown up in an organisation that's quite command and control, or there's just this kind of expectation to have all the answers and know how to respond to every situation. And, you know, if this is something that leaders haven't spent so much time thinking about before, it can feel really scary for them. And I you know I kind of I have some sympathy for that um and actually just just one of the things I'd say here as well is if if your leaders aren't yet on the same page don't panic right because tons can be done bottom Mm. up and diagonally and left and right you don't always have to wait for it to be led from the top but when you've got to a point where your leaders are going right okay I'm here you know what do I need to do help me because that's usually what they want like tell me what to do and I'll do it because they don't know what to do um is you know they might see programs and initiatives happening and they might be really actively sponsoring those things but then going back to their everyday work and their everyday interactions and carry on doing what they've always done so you need to be really specific about what you want leaders to do and it isn't about giving them 73 things at once Mm. it's about being really specific about in your team in your department in your work here's what could help. So the kinds of things I've got, which I've talked about already, if their team size is big enough in your organisation, give the engagement scores broken down by demographics for their team. Mm -hmm. Help them understand the experiences of the people in their own team and how varied they are or how similar they are. Like Mm -hmm. help them understand. The next one is diversity data for their team. And this is around applications for jobs, Uh, shortlisting, who gets invited for interview, who gets internal promotions, but also who's leaving and what rate they're leaving at. And if you Mm -hmm. can blend all of that data together and go, here's what's happening in your team and your sphere of influence, that's when you get the big aha moments. Because it's like, oh, okay, so we're doing a really good job of bringing people in, but they're not staying. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, when we look at promotions, we can see there's an over-representation with one demographic and not with another one. It just creates so much more clarity 
about what might need to happen on a day-to-day so that's Mm. the kind of the leadership the people in my team stuff yeah and then for whatever their area of expertise is it comes back to linking it to their work again again it's that data so if somebody is leading on customer service um look at the retention or the mps data by demographic if somebody is leading the supply chain reviewing the number of suppliers that are owned or led by women or people from underrepresented groups like what does the supply chain look like how are you collaborating with and working with the people in your supply chain to create a more inclusive supply chain business development you know if you're looking at at kind of research or insight with third parties get them to present that information back to you in a way that is breaking any data down by demographics quite often people use segments and they might be looking at lifestyle changes that so might be um you know early 20s or young family or approaching retirement whatever those segments are fine mm. but overlay diversity demographics in yeah. those segments so you've got single parent families same sex couple families etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. um and they get the last example you know if you work in pr you know have a look at who gets put up on a stage in a year yeah. who gets published you know who's getting showcased as the experts in your organization who's going and influencing kind of decision makers and stakeholders so whatever the area of expertise is for the leader literally help them go in your work here's how to think about that with a diversity and inclusion lens absolutely thank you i think i'd add to that as well so i've i've often been the poster girl of diversity for organizations that i've worked in so i'll be on every poster um every mailer just to show we're a really diverse organization but never you know but was never the one that was put on stage like you said you know to be pitched as the um the expert or the sme etc so I think that authenticity piece and linking that in there is also really important is showcase and think about if you're showcasing, make sure it's not just tokenistic. So really giving people platforms, um, you know, diverse, you know, a diverse range of people that you give those platforms to is really important and not have it just be, you know, for your mailers or your website, etc. hundred percent. Yeah. One of the things I talk about is give and get. Yeah. So if people are giving you, here's my lived yeah. experience, I'll be the poster, you know, did it like give, 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 because you yeah. believe and you want to contribute and all the rest of it. What's mm-hmm. the get? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other pieces as well, I think when I'm coaching leaders um, that are keen to be more inclusive leaders, essentially, um, what I really enjoy and and drive is kind of giving people the space to ask those really uncomfortable questions is, is, you know, we've looked at the diversity makeup of your team, for example, what are your barriers kind of why does your team look the way it is and having those really honest conversations Mm -hmm. you know why are people leaving etc and and giving people the space to be really transparent about well actually I struggle to you know pronounce this type of name for example Mm -hmm. or I struggle to understand when someone from this background has this issue or this feeling about something etc and really mm-hmm. just creating that space where actually we can have those really honest conversations and, and you know, and I can share some perspectives around that in safe spaces. Because the worst thing for a, a leader is never going to want to get on a stage and say, guys, can you tell me why my team isn't diverse? <laughs> like, you just, you're just not going to want to do that, are you? Yeah. But what I find is that most leaders, in fact, all leaders that I engage with really, really want to move forward in this area. Um, they just need a safe space to do it in. Um, and I think that's so important for us as professionals in this space as well is creating that safe space. But also my message to everyone is always, I'm also going to coach you to get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. People are jumping out of planes. No one's jumping out of the plane screaming, yay! Like they're really uncomfortable, but they're doing it anyway. So, yeah, um, that's such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. So no. Do you know I'm, what? I'm really- The other thing I think we should say, because we've both said the word safety, I think, a couple of times. So there's that bit around creating a safe space for leaders to go, oh, help me understand, (laughs) you know, what is, you know, space to reflect. But also one of the leadership 
um, things is them creating a safe enough environment in their everyday meetings, conversations, discussions mm -hmm. for people to be able to say as simple as, mm, I don't agree, or I've got a different yeah. perspective. Like if you can create that, as well I think safety is such a big thing in this space too. so powerful but you know what it's interesting because I actually feel bad for I worked in an organization where our CEO was exactly like that he was like I want you to tell me exactly what you think and how you feel and he was fuming by the end of every meeting because people did exactly <laughs> that like it came it, I felt so bad for him people were just brutally honest um, so I think there's, you know, we need to find a balance. Yeah, the balance, um, yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. His intentions were so good, but he was exhausted at the end of every meeting, and mm. sometimes he was just poured on. Poor guy. Um, so I think, you know, looking at the ways that you do that as well. So are yeah. you going to create mechanisms? You know, um, you know, I've, I've seen people have polls where you can submit your thoughts, etc. but encouraging people not to be anonymous with that. And when you use polls as well, the great thing about that is, you know, when you use a tool like Slido, for example, it can pull responses into themes. So you're not answering mm -hmm. the same thing again mm -hmm. and again. And it can sometimes help you to just ma manage it a bit more effectively. But I completely agree with you, Catherine. I think that's so important. It's that give and that get, isn't it? Yeah, but even in your core team, right, if you've got... I don't know, eight direct reports, are all eight of them safe enough in a one-on-one -on -one with you to go, mm. actually, I'm not sure. Yeah. Or do four of them feel really safe doing that and four are just mm. going, okay, fine, because it's just not worth me speaking up. Yeah. And then even if, you know, it may not even always just be, it's not worth me thinking up. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer, mm. and she talks a lot in there about... Um, sometimes cultural differences are the reasons that people don't speak up and sometimes yeah. people need to be asked for their perspective yeah, rather than the point. expectation that they'll just volunteer that so mm -hmm. having that understanding I think is also really important is what mm -hmm. is the diversity makeup of my team and how can that impact the way that they communicate with me um yeah. so I would also recommend that book to any leaders yeah. who inclusive change if you want to understand your teams better the culture map is a brilliant book obviously we've said get conscious inclusion too <laughs> get them all <laughs> okay all right so to close I always like to close these sessions with a bit of a call to action so if I'm a leader wanting to really drive inclusion in my organization and create equitable change what would your call to action for me be uh so i could just be really cheeky and be like go buy the book and read the book um part, yeah, part three part three is all about leadership and culture actually so that's there's a really nice chunk in there but um yeah i think pro probably the three things i love threes the three things i would say is um the first one would be data 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 whatever the data is you use in your organization to review success you know how well is your organization doing what are people's experiences what's customers experience whatever data 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 break it down by demographics and review it in the same frequency you review all other business data you want to get serious about this stuff use that and create the routine and the pattern in the same way that you do everything else uh, second one we just talked about was that safety you know think about the the ways your team communicate like can people disagree is it safe can mm. people tell you you've got it wrong can people say actually that's not right mm. you've made an assumption that doesn't match my experience um and the third one is again I've talked about this before but focus on what you can do in your own department sometimes leaders are kind of waiting for the whole peer group to be on the same page um it doesn't always happen people will be at different spaces for different reasons so focus on what you can do in your own department focus on your part of the world you will go further faster if you do that anyway yeah. you know and as soon as you start seeing results it might take six months depending on what it is that you find when you do your research you have to be a little bit patient but focus on what you can do in your own world and then as you're building that confidence, you're seeing all those kind of milestones, celebrate the progress because it will be lots of little things, usually not, you know, one yeah. big thing, but celebrate that progress and then use that to inspire others that aren't as confident or experienced as you are.
Absolutely. Celebrating the small wins as well as the big ones, I think is so important. So mm. important. Catherine, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know loads of our listeners are going to get take value from it. And I also know that people are going to run out and get your book because it is a brilliant book. Um, but also I think if you're a leader that's looking for a toolkit on how you do inclusion the right way in your organisation, this is definitely the book for you. So happy reading. Um, and Catherine, thank you so much again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to talk to you too. This podcast is brought to you by Acquaintance Consulting. We'd love it if you could take a minute at the end of this podcast to follow, subscribe, whichever is easier or available for you on the platform that you're listening to us on. We're really keen to grow this channel and really impact equality, diversity and inclusion across the world. And with your support, we can do just that.